James 1, 13 through 16. Uh, turn there with me. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Right, that's the classic, classic commercial. And I always thought it was a ridiculous commercial because they always showed these people doing crazy outlandish stunts uh, for something that you can buy at the store. So I was like, you know what I would do for a Klondike bar? I'd go to the store and buy one. As I don't have any, I must not really be tempted by them, right? If, if I was tempted to them, maybe I would do something outlandish for them. But I'm not really tempted by the Klondike bar. Um, it's, a, it's a question of temptation and desire, right? It, it is meant to, to uh, evoke in you these feelings of, of need, of want. You know... That's a silly example, perhaps, in, uh, in having an ice cream bar. But what would tempt you to leave your spouse? What would tempt you to start a fight with someone else? What would tempt you to abandon your friends, to betray them? What would tempt you to begin a war? Or crucify a man known for healing people and teaching with wisdom? There are many evils, many sins that we see in the world. And if we're honest, there are many evils and many sins that we see in ourselves. And we all understand this pull, this temptation to do dark deeds. But where do such temptations spring forth? That's a, that's a, a question that is probably pressed upon us at some point. Where, why do I have temptations? Where do they come from? Can we say that God created that within us? Can we blame the devil? Well, today in our passage, James instructs believers that temptation to sin arises from us, never God. Temptation to sin arises from us, never God. Let's look at the scripture this morning and see that out of James 1, 13 through 16. And this is the word of the Lord. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James writes because he wants the churches, he wants God's people to understand what faithfulness entails. Because we are called, if you are in Christ, you are called to faithfulness. Uh, contrary to what a, a, a lot we may see or hear in the American church today, God does command you to obedience. You are not saved by your obedience. But if you are saved, you will be obedient. That's one of the things we'll see time and time again throughout uh, the letter of James here. He wants them to understand what it is to be mature believers because there are various trials of life that come along and it matters whether or not we endure those trials. It matters whether or not we remain steadfast, that we endure. Because as he has just said in the verse before our passage, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this first chapter has really been focusing on this issue of trials, of temptations, of testing. And we come now to our passage and we, we have to ask the question, answer the question, how do we how do we rightly view sinful desire? We need wisdom to be able to remain faithful. And James here is offering us wisdom as it comes to temptation. So let us first see in our passage God's role in our temptation. And that's in verse 13, God's role in our temptation. So God is the one who promises the crown of life to those who endure trials. And as James is writing, right, he transitions now from discussing that glorious truth to another about God. So God is the one who gives the crown of life 
And he gives us another truth about who God is. God is not the one who tempts us to sin. He never entices us to sin. The word tempted here is that same word we've seen already in our passage about this issue of trials. And um, as we have discussed that word, we have made the point to say that how we uh, how we interpret it, how we translate it, ver- trials versus temptations versus those kind of external things that happen to us versus the internal desires to sin, uh, that we have to we have to look at the context of what is being said in order to determine how we translate that word. And as we look to our passage today, it does seem that that word is best translated temptation because we're talking about sin. It's not, it's not some external factor pressing upon us. It's an internal desire arising from us. And briefly, temptation is that which entices us to sin. Right? It's something that creates a desire in us. Trials we might think of in a negative sense because they're difficulty, right? They're problematic. Well, temptation is also negative, but in a much uh, much greater sense because temptation builds desire and sinful desire leads to sin, right? Leads to death as what the scripture says here. And the reality is, is that we are all tempted, right? We are all tempted. As long as we are in this flesh, we will suffer temptations. But we do not all have the same temptation, right? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the first part of verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13a, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So, right, we all suffer temptation. And sometimes we may get this idea that what we particularly desire what we particularly struggle with is different from everyone else it's unique than what everyone else uh, everyone else suffers under and that may be true in our closest circle of family and friends we may uniquely suffer a temptation that those who are closest to us don't suffer but what paul says there in the scripture right is no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man If you look at the root of that sin, you probably find even in your closest circles that they struggle with some of the very same things. But as we certainly consider the wider, uh, the wider world, we find that there are many people who suffer, who, who struggle with desires just as we do. But there is some, so there's some kind of commonality to our temptation. But what is God's role in our temptation? James speaks clearly here right james speaks clearly he says let no one say when he is tempted i'm being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one let no one say i am tempted of god god does have a role in our testing right so when we're talking about trials there is an element where god is involved in that we could look, for instance, to Genesis chapter 22, 1. Uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Right? If we remember, God tests Abraham with his son, the son of the promise. Would you go and sacrifice your son to me, Abraham? It was a testing. We know that God tested the people of Israel in the wilderness. And how did they fail? Uh, how did they pass those tests? They didn't, right? They failed those tests. But God has nothing to do with our sinful desire. He is not there enticing us to sinfulness. Right? God is not building within us desires for evil. And we'll get to the issue of where those desires arise as we go through our passage. But here, right now, we need to understand that God's role in our temptation is that he is not the author of it. He is not the creator of it. He is not there dangling the carrot in front of our face. He never tempts us to sin. And James gives us two reasons. First, he says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God is good, righteous, and just. In God, there is not a whiff of evil or wrongdoing. 
We're talking about the nature of God, the name of God. Right? We're talking about his character. Who is God? What is he like? The scripture is clear. He is not evil. He is not like us. He is holy. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, a familiar passage to us, perhaps. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The angels cry out. The angels sing. Those who attend closest to God sing. Holy, holy, holy. And this threefold holy is the Hebrew way to describe the superlative. The angels are saying that God is the holiest. There is none who is holy as he is holy. If we say that God is holier, we're using a comparative, right? We're comparing two things. We're saying, here's, here's a sample, here's a sample, this sample is, is better than this one, right? Both samples might be good, but this one's better. And whenever we're talking about the comparative, right, when we say something is better, that could mean that something is better than it. The best, right? Good, better, best. When we're talking about God's holiness, right, it is not just that God is holy. It's not just that God is holier than others. God is the holiest. He is the standard by which holiness is measured. There is none holier than God. And so the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And we would be right to join them. And singing that. And what does it mean that God is holy? It means that he's entirely set apart from all else. In the context that we're discussing this morning, it means that in accord with his righteousness, there is nothing in him evil in any way. And here's the reality of this. If we could find even an iota, an atom of evilness in God, the whole of the universe would come undone. Our faith would be overturned. Why do I say that? Because with evil comes change. With evil comes the question, is this true or not? With evil comes lying, deception. And so if God was at even in a smallest bit evil, we would question, God, have you really saved me? God, are, are you really accepting of Christ's work? The whole of the universe would come crashing down around us because we couldn't trust the one who created it and who sustains it. But this we know, God is good always. From eternity past to eternity future, this we know about God. He is good. His goodness is fixed. It doesn't change because he doesn't change. He's not like us. We change a lot. Before the end of the day, you will have changed, but God will have not. God is good and holy and righteous and just. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 68, 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So God cannot be tempted with evil. There is nothing that could tempt God to evil. Not us, not Satan, nobody. Nobody could give a reasoning, an argument to God where God would say, you know what, maybe I will try this evil thing. Now, God is good and he cannot be tempted by evil. And as this is so, what we see secondly in verse 13, and he himself tempts no one. 
If it is true that God cannot be tempted to do evil, and if it is true that God is all good and holy, 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 then how could he tempt anyone? How could he dangle evil in front of anyone? He couldn't, and he doesn't. Well, then the question arises, is there someone who tempts others? The answer is yes. We know that well from the scripture. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Or how about Job 1, 9 through 11? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Or Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The evil one is always about trying to entice people to sin. He is about trying to tempt. His work, right? His life's goal, if we might say, is to pull as many people down to hell with him as he can. Satan is not all-powerful. He only can do that which God gives him leash to do. But it is incumbent upon us to do as James says in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. We do not have to listen to the lies of Satan. We do not have to give his voice room in our head. We can submit ourselves to God. We can look to Christ Jesus. We can look to the power of the Holy Spirit to put the death, the deeds of the body. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is not tempting you. So if you suffer temptation and desires for sin, God is not the author of those things. It may be the work of the devil. Don't think that he is not above doing that. As we see, as we continue in our passage, what we might actually find is that it's not even the work of the devil as much as it is the work of our own sinful flesh. So what is God's role in our temptation? God does play a role in our temptation, but it is not to entice us to sin. Uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. And we'll look at the whole verse this time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So right, Paul says we have common temptations, that there are, there are commonalities in the things that we struggle with as it comes to sin. And in the midst of those struggles, in the midst of those sinful desires that arise within us, God is faithful and he gives us a way of escape. We do not, if you are in Christ, listen to this, and you may not believe this, if you have suffered long under failing in uh, fighting against sinful desire. You may not believe this, but this is the truth of the scripture. This is the truth of who God is. You do not have to give in to temptation. You do not have to give in to sinful desire. You do not have to sin. Now, in the sinfulness of our flesh, we will. But that is not something that is forced upon you. Right, we'll go through and understand this. Right, What the scripture says there in 1 Corinthians 10. God will give you a way of escape. And I can tell you, I can attest to that, that God does in the midst of, um, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of sinful desire. Uh, he has given me uh, a way of escape. He has provided promptings and uh, means for me to, to catch what I'm doing and to avoid it, to stop it, to turn from it. And I can also tell you with great shame that there are many times when he gives me those ways out and I ignore them entirely. Uh, and that is a matter of confession and going to God and asking for his forgiveness. Right? You may have experienced the same thing. God gives us grace, brothers and sisters. Our running to temptation should not be so. But let us never forget that when we fail God, 
He remains faithful. God is faithful. And when we sin against Him, He can yet forgive us. 1 John 2, 1-2 gives us this blessed promise. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that word propitiation there, that is God's wrath being poured on on Jesus, that which we deserve. So Jesus stands in our place taking God's wrath. He is our propitiation. We have an advocate with the Father. If you trust in Christ, you have an advocate that even when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Someone who is interceding on your behalf. So let's remember always our Savior, Jesus Christ. He died for the payment of our sins. And He rose from the grave to prove God's acceptance of His work. And in this we have hope in our own resurrection. So God's role in our temptation is that He is not the source of it. So let us never think that. And why might we think that? Uh, Calvin uh, says it well in his commentary. We think that because uh, as sinful wretches, we are always looking to blame someone. And so why not say, God, it's this woman that you gave me. Right? Echoing what Adam said in the Garden of Eden. So what is our role in our temptation? Then? Let us, we have to consider that in our passage this morning in verses 14 through 15. Our role in our temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted then from within himself. James is not discounting Satan's role here, right? He doesn't mention it, but we do see he does elsewhere in his letter. But he is here pressing home this truth. We are sinners. It is not just that we sin. It is that we are sinners. It is not just that we do evil things, but apart from the work of Christ in us, we are evil. Jesus has to deal with the self-righteous sect of the Pharisees as they propagate their traditions of ritual washings in Matthew 15. Uh, They come up and essentially accuse Jesus' disciples of 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 being dirty, of defiling themselves because they dared to eat something without doing the proper ceremonial washing. And Jesus says in Matthew fifteen ten through 11, And he called the people to him and said to him, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And as his disciples interact with this and try and understand it, they ask Jesus. Peter asks for an explanation. And Jesus elaborates in 17 and 20 through 20 of chapter 15. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The reality is this. The evil that you commit, the evil that you commit comes from within you. All of the immorality that you have committed is not because some external force has pressed upon you and made you to sin. The truth is You are a sinner. And you may think, well, I've not really done anything really that bad to be called evil. But notice what one of the things Jesus says is out of the mouth comes what? Out of the heart from the heart, out of the mouth comes evil thoughts. Have you ever thought evil things? Have you ever thought about that car that pulls out in front of you, cutting you off, that you just want to push them off into the ditch? No, just me, I guess. Have you ever thought about evil, evil things about other people? Consider what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. 
For the man who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Evil thoughts. Then he goes on to talk about murder. It's not just killing someone that's murder. It's being so angry in your heart that you want them dead. That is murder. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's 1 John 1.10. This is what condemns mankind. This is what fits man for hell. And as much as we would like to blame one another, as much as we would like to blame someone else, it is ultimately at root us. There is no one to blame but ourselves. For we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. And James here uses this lured and enticed. These are hunting and fishing terms, right? What he is saying is that which captures us, that which puts us, us on the fishing hook is our own desire. It's not somebody else's desire. It's not God tempting us. It's not the devil even doing his work, though he does play a role. It's ultimately at root in us. And when we think of this word desire, it can be a neutral word, right? If, you, if you're thirsty, you have a desire for a drink. That's a good thing. But James What he has in view here is clearly sinful desires. And indeed, when we hear this word desire, we think of the seductress in the book of Proverbs. And you could look at that in Proverbs uh, 5 to 9. has a lot about that there. But I just want us to hone in on one scene in Proverbs 7, 10 through 23. There's this foolish man and he's going about at twilight in the dark. You know, the, the sun has set and there's little light left and he's walking the streets Starting in verse 10 of Proverbs 7. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer, offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Right here comes this beautiful lady. I've been waiting for you. I've got a feast prepared. My bed is clean and smells fresh. Oh, and best thing of all, my husband's away on a long journey. We can have all the time that we want. Her voice is as smooth as honey, but his fate is as bitter as the wormwood. The foolish man follows her, and is like a buck shot from afar. It doesn't know it's dead until the bolt strikes. He has no knowledge of what is happening to him, and yet he is dead all the same. The sins we love, the sins that entice us, are born within us. We hear their call, tempting us to come into their bedchambers and commit sin against a holy God. We hear the whisper of enticement, and we would like to think at times that these desires within us are from outside of us, that something else has implanted them within us, that we don't have responsibility for them. But what the scripture makes clear is that the sins that that entice us, the temptation that builds uh, within us, The temptation we run after 
is born from our own desire, not another's, our own. We are tempted not by our good father, but by the evils that arise in our sinful flesh. And then verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where do those desires lead? To sin. And where does, what is the, the fruit of sin? Death. We sin when we rush after tempting desire, and that sin will lead to our death. That's how it was in the very beginning, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they died that day. Spiritually first, but not many years after. Many in our context today, maybe, but not really for what they were created for. They died a physical death. All sin leads to death. And those who live in sin will live in death. And don't mistake the mercy of God in this moment as an absence of the judgment that is waiting for those who sin. You may think, well, I've sinned in lots of ways and I'm still fine. I'm still here. I've not been judged. Fool, your life may be required of you this very day. What then will you say to him? We could consider this warning from the early church out of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to compare? Keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias sinned because for some reason he wanted the praise of man. He wanted to to appear this great and generous person. And for his lie, he paid for it. In a moment of judgment, God, God poured out his wrath on Ananias. The sad reality is, that his wife joins him not but three hours later. And they both had to stand before the holy God of heaven and give account for their life. Yet, Christ Jesus died on the cross for his people's sins. He took the fruit of sin for his people. He did this, that we who trust in him might have life, might have abundant life, might have eternal life. He gave himself in our place that we might be able to receive the crown of life. And so what is incumbent upon you today is to go to Christ Jesus and confess your sins and turn from them. Believe in Jesus as the son of God. Believe in the work of cross. Believe in God. And in this belief, in your trusting in him, you will be saved from your sins. Romans 6, 5 through 11 tells tells us this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. If you have been united with Christ, you are dead to sin. And sin no longer has domain over you, no longer has reign over you, no longer has dominion over you. You have been given a way out of temptation. 
Our role in our temptation is that it arises from within our sinful flesh. And so what is, what do we do? If you are in Christ Jesus, what do you do when you are tempted? 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain. Stay away. Run away. Romans 8.12.13 So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we fight against the desires and temptations of our heart. We pray to God. We ask God, God, would you lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one? We keep our eyes pure. We resolve not to take in that which is unseemly for a child of God. And listen, this is something we have to truly attend ourselves to in this day and age because everywhere around us is sinful desire. Indeed, what do you think they do in commercials? Why is it that every new TV series that comes out is rated M.A.? for mature audiences because they know sex sells because they know that sinful desire builds within us a desire to watch it and take part in it. Maybe we would be better off with the TV on the front lawn than in our living rooms. I'm not saying that you have to do that. I don't think, uh, I don't think you have to do that. But if that is a source of temptation, we keep our eyes pure. We discipline our bodies like an athlete disciplines their body in order to win the prize. And when we fail, when we give in, when desire gives birth to sin, we look to Jesus afresh. We confess our sins and find forgiveness because God is faithful and just. And we strive anew to put off the old man and to put on the new man, Jesus Christ. Listen, we look to one another. We stir one another up to love and to good works. We seek help and accountability. We share our burdens with one another. Because here's the reality. Far too long in the American church, Christianity has been relegated to hypocrisy. It's been relegated to this idea of making a good show of ourselves that we're perfect and without sin. We love to say that the greatest struggle we had this week was maybe some inconsequential temptation. Right? We would, we would not, never admit to the real things we struggle with in our flesh, but we will the inconsequential. Right? We might say, well, I was tempted to a second cookie after dinner the other night. Boy, that was hard. But we don't talk anything about our our desire to commit adultery against our wife or to uh, kill someone or to lie or to cheat, to steal. For far too long, those who call themselves Christians have pretended that their sinful desires are so far gone and so far away that they're no longer a problem. But in this hypocrisy, sin has festered. The result of that kind of mindset in the American church today is that we lie about the state of our souls and the leaders of the church have been exalted to sinful perfection. And what we find happen is that when the truth is revealed, when we are honest, whether by force or otherwise, when God in his righteous judgment allows the falsehoods to crumble away, we're shocked. We're stunned. We say, how could that person, he looked like such a good Christian man. How could he, how could he do that sin? How could he commit that sin? How could, he, how could he fall in that way? And let me be the first to say that I am a sinful wretch and I have fallen to more temptations than I care ever to admit. I've allowed sinful desires to take root in my heart. I have set up shrines for them and I have worshipped them as idols. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's my hope. Here's your hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord.
So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. By God's grace, he has helped me to tear down idols in my heart. By God's grace, he will continue to work to conform me to the image of his son. By his grace, I will fail increasingly less to the desires of my sinful flesh and live in greater obedience to his commands. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be honest. Confess your sins. Seek the Lord Jesus because there is more grace in him than there is sin in you. And strive by the spirit of Christ to kill sin. You who are married, lean on your spouse to that end. God has brought you together in order to sanctify you both. Don't neglect to work for the grace of your spouse, to show each other grace and love. But also lean on your Christian brothers and sisters. And if you're single, you especially need to lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot fight sin alone. And here's the reality. You weren't meant to. None of us were. Church, we all need to bear one another's burdens. We need to pray for one another that we may be healed. This church, this church, it is my prayer, will be a place of grace. It will be a place where sinners find the grace of God, where we all find ourselves to be the saints we are called to be, and not because we have earned that right, but because God in his compassion chose us from before the foundation of the world that we would be objects of his everlasting mercy. And so let us confess our sins. Let us show grace. Let us strive and struggle against the sins that so easily beset us. Let us see the truth in our temptation. And that's verse 16. Thirdly, truth in our temptation. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This last verse acts as a kind of hinge between what we're talking about here with temptation and what he will go into when it comes to the good gifts that come from the Father. And here's the encouragement he says, right? Don't be deceived. When it comes to our being tempted, we can be easily deceived into thinking that God's hand is behind it. He is sovereign after all, but he is not the author of evil. He is not tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. Don't be deceived by the lies of Satan. Don't be deceived either by your sin. Don't believe the lie that you are only subject to your sin. If you are in Christ, you do not have to sin in the same ways that you have. You don't have to. Don't believe the lie that once you have felt the tempting desire that you can do not else but give in. If you truly cannot fight against the desires of your flesh, you are enslaved to them. You need to go to Christ who has come to set the captive free. You need to pray to him this moment for victory. And don't believe the lie that there is no such thing as victory over sin. One commentator says it well. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to it. You can have victory over sin in one day, And oh, blessed day, you will have complete victory over sin and death. One day, sin will no longer have a root in you. One day, death will be dead to you forever. So let us not be deceived about our temptations, brothers and sisters in Christ. When we are enticed to sin, it is not because God has meanly put that temptation before us that we can do not else but fall for it. It is not because God wants us to fall to temptation. On the contrary, your desire for sin arises from your own flesh. And sure, now and then Satan may dangle the bait in front of you, but the bait would be meaningless if it were not for the sinfulness of your flesh. Christ Jesus was tempted by the devil and he did not give in. Indeed, we may cry with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But let us also recognize with Paul So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's Romans 8.12. It is true that we who have been redeemed by our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, have been set free from death and sin, and yet our mortal bodies still feel the weight of those. We are cleansed from our sin, and yet we find when we want to do good, evil lies close at hand. 1 Corinthians 15.50-52 says, I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. As surely as Christ Jesus rose from the grave that first Easter Sunday, your mortal body will put on immortality and no longer will you struggle with evil desires that lead to sin. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But in the interim, you need to put the death the deeds of the body. You need to kill sin, brothers and sisters. You need to stamp out evil desires. Keep yourself from temptation and pray to that end. And when you fall to temptation, when you allow sin to be birthed in your heart, repent of it. Confess it to God. Pray to Him immediately that He would give you the change in your heart that you need. Pray boldly. Pray that He would do whatever it takes to make you fit for heaven. Maybe pray the words of Jesus out of Matthew 5, 29-30, that God would impress these upon your heart. Listen to what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And I am sure of this, Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, look to Christ your Savior. Look to him who died and suffered in your place and let the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior motivate you to kill your sin, to seek him for grace when you do sin, and to hope for the day when you will sin no more and forever be in his glorious holy, loving presence. But for those of you who do not trust in Christ, for those of you who think little of your sin, know this, sin, when it is fully grown, gives rise to death. To the Christians in Rome, Paul writes, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The end of shameful sins is death. The end of your sins is death. If you allow sin to reign in your heart, if you allow it to have dominion over you, your expectation is death and judgment. God will bring forth the full fury of his wrath against you. You will be cast forever from his presence and it will be with you as it was for the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus gives. As the rich man is away from the presence of God, he begs for but a drop of water to be put on his tongue that he might find some relief. And yet, he gets none. The terrors of hell are real and more horrifying than you can imagine. But the delights of Christ are real and more wonderful than you can imagine. Jesus Christ died to save his people from his sins. And he rose from the grave, proving he is indeed the son of God, that his work was good and acceptable and perfect to his father. And what remains for you is to trust in Christ Jesus. Believe he is who he says he is. Confess your sins to God and repent of them. Turn from them. Ask him to forgive you and you will be forgiven. Believe this good news. Believe the gospel today. So look to Christ the Savior. Look to him who died and suffered in your place. And let the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior motivate you to kill your sin, to seek him for grace when you do, and to hope for the day when you will sin no more. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we confess this day that we that we hold on to temptation far too long, that we allow ourselves to dwell on desires that are sin. And Father, if we are given free reign, we would sin against your holy name again and again and again and again. 
But Lord, we also know that Christ has come, that we might not sin. You have given us your Holy Spirit that we may not sin. You have revealed in your scriptures that the calling for us in Christ is to be holy as you are holy. And Father, we confess that we, are, we fail at that. We fail to even have that as our goal. So Lord, have mercy upon us. Show us your divine grace and help us to understand your word. Help us to understand this, what James has written for our benefit. Lord God, that we would not sin against you. And Father, that when we do sin against you, we would trust you that you are faithful. We would trust Christ Jesus the more and we would run quickly to you and confess our sins and to turn from them. Father, help us. Father, help us because you know who we are. You know we are but dust. Father, you know that without, without your work within us, we have no hope. But as you have promised, as you have promised to give us your Holy Spirit, as you have, if we have trusted in Christ, that, that he is the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance to come. Father, we, we strive then all, all the more, anew and afresh, even this very moment, to walk as you would have us walk. Father, we, we resolve to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is your word, and to kill sin. We pick up the shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. God, we resolve to, to gird ourselves with your armor that we might stand against those spiritual forces over this present darkness that seek our end. And Father, we pray for your spirit to be upon those who don't know you. God, we pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth about Jesus, that they would believe in Christ Jesus and confess their sins. And Father, we plead with them. And oh, give us boldness to plead with them. Be reconciled. Father, we thank you for your glorious work, for all that you have done on our behalf. And we pray this in the name of our crucified Savior who has risen and ascended at your right hand, who intercedes on our behalf, and who is coming again to gather us that we may be with, with you always. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.